Welcome to the Northern Outcast Outdoors Podcast. The Outcast. Powered by ANF Custom Calls. Veteran Innovative Products. Everybody strapped in here? Mm-hmm. All right. So we are on the second half of a doubleheader here today. And this is the second doubleheader in a row where both people had the same name last week. Last time we had Matt and Matt, and today we got John and John. So this is episode six with our buddy John Wappler from Pittsburgh, local boy. And Dubberg. this dude stacks elk bodies, dude. Stacks bodies. How is it going, my dude? It's going good. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how true that is. I guess it's... Uh get lucky every once in a while i mean you just sent me a bunch of pictures and i was like dude you're giving me an inferiority complex here dude knock it off (laughs) (laughs) it was a good year 2020 was a yeah i guess not a great year for everything else but for hunting worked out all right for me i mean three elk in three states that's and for someone you know in the east eastern united states that's for any human being on this planet yes it's a pretty big deal that's a hell of a year i don't care who you are or what you do that's really good unless you're guiding or something along those lines. Yeah. You know, some private property or big secret areas. I don't know. <laughs> you well, know. the one you got completely solo, and was it the Wyoming one? Uh, they were all solo. Well, no. One, my Wyoming one was the only one I got with a buddy. Okay. Uh, I Colorado and Arizona were solo. I, I'm usually, usually solo, but yeah, they, uh, it was all just easy, like over the counter, easy to draw type of tag. Arizona is kind of a hard state to draw, but this is like a late archery season. Nobody wants to do, you know, draw with zero points, ton of guys, but that was, uh, it was awesome. It was repeat of 2019 too. I drew all the exact same tags in 2019 and did it again in 2020. And I'm hoping to do the same thing in 2021. That's awesome. You said, uh, whenever we were talking last week, cause I was asking what states you would, you know, got your stuff in. And then you said Idaho was kind of your backup plan. Are you planning on applying for that too again? No, they, so Idaho, I think went a little bit different this year. Yeah. You know, I'm not someone that applies in Idaho at all, but last year I bought a tag in one of the units just as a backup because I wasn't sure what I would draw and I never used it. I was trying to do the same thing this year, but in when they released the tags for sale in, December of 2020 for 2021 season, all of the reasonable areas sold out. I think the only place that still has tags is like the Selway or something like that. And a couple other units that are notoriously either full of grizzly bears or devoid of elk. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm totally passing on Idaho this year. Well, that's a big investment too, to take a tag in an area like that too. And then, you know, knowing your odds are already stacked against you. And you're probably just going to, to me, it's like the last resort thing. If I didn't draw, you know, Wyoming or I hadn't drawn Arizona, I would have just done Colorado over the counter in Idaho. And it's nice to have as that backup, but doing the, uh, and that was my thought going into this year. It just didn't work out. I was, I was late to the ball. I didn't really think about it until January. And by the time I looked into it, everybody, it, this year was a big fiasco there. Idaho for the last couple of years has been selling out sooner and sooner and last year i got it in like february and it sold out i you know i'm no expert but sometime a month or two earlier than it normally does and i i know in 2016 guys would you know residents could get two tags after the non-residents wouldn't take all of them so they were it's becoming i think all the people going into colorado or leaving going to idaho thinking there was 
greener pastures and fewer hunters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the statistics kind of show that between the two states, but I think another part of it too was, you know, with the COVID scare, there was a lot of states shutting down applications and license sales early to non-residents. And I think uh, what happened is everybody wanted to get that tag and they just went out and bought it as early as possible. And they did sell out in record time last year. It was insane. Yeah, our, our buddies just, were trying to go out there and yeah, and, we were going to Idaho originally too before work shut us down. And then, I mean, we were planning on applying in February, I think, and they were already sold out. Yeah. It's crazy. There, well, the good news is there's, you know, Oregon has over the counter archery tags. Colorado does. Utah has a couple any bull units. They've got some spike over the counter tag. You can still, if you're late to the game, still figure something out. Idaho's a good option if it's available, but right now, by the time you're, by the time we're talking here, it's a, it's a 2022 hunt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How did you start to figure all this stuff out? With all the draws and the applications, did you have assistance when you first got started with that, or did you just do a ton of research and figure it all out on your own? I guess I should explain to you how I got started in it okay. and how I got started hunting out west. I'm surprised Chuck right didn't now, yell at me for not. I have, we were just talking about, I just like dive right into it. I, I skipped like the introduction the completely because you just got in deep. So I just started with the conversation. Figured <laughs> if anybody wants to know who John is, they can just look you up. <laughs> but I'm That's kidding. Right. Yeah. So yeah, back, <laughs> back to square one. This is John. He hunts yeah. out. He's from Pittsburgh. <laughs> That's in an, that's like my, uh, you know, my, uh, dating profile line, right? <laughs> I love it. But the, right now the answer is use Go Hunt. It's the easiest way to figure everything out and you don't have to do it manually. But when I got into it, I, it was kind of an interesting thing. I'd, you know, growing up hunting whitetails, like around home and, you know, hunting bear and whatever else, turkey, grouse, pheasants, you know, you name it and always wanted to hunt out west. And I had 2016, it was strange, but I ended up having like some pain in my hip, went to a doctor, got a couple opinions, and I got two doctors to tell me that I needed a hip replacement that I didn't want to do. And they said, if you don't do it now, you're going to have to do it by the time you're yeah, 35. I was 25 wow. at the time. So they, that to me was like, the, all right, if I actually want to do this, I better do it now. I found that out like, May, June timeframe. And then, like, all right, I started looking at options. I didn't really bow hunt that much at the time. You know, I just did some whitetail bow hunting. I didn't really think I had like a good setup for elk. So I figured I'm going to try rifle. And Colorado is the only state that had anything. And funny enough, all of my buddies that I hunt with at home did not want to go. So I called everybody that I hunt with around here. I called my dad. Nobody at the time thought it would be a great idea to go out west and hunt. When I did the research into Colorado, you could pretty much show up for the second and third rifle season in the vast majority of the state, buy a tag at Walmart, and, you know, go hunt elk for 600 bucks. And the only person who would go with me is my wife. So we, uh, I took my wife on my first hunt. A lot of credit to her because she, I, I, I might have done it without her, but it was definitely better going with somebody else and she was the only one who would do it so and it was actually nice to have a partner that wasn't hunting to help with some stuff but we found uh, at the time we just found a decent area of national forest that looked like it had a sizable herd of elk and decent harvest rates 
now I, I learned later that the reason that the harvest rates were so good is because the, it was a, the unit's like 80% private land where we started and 20%, you know, 20% public. Yeah. So all of the harvest was coming off private. Mm, and, statistics. You know, right. Exactly. But, but you learn over time, right? Yeah. The first year that I got out there, we, I ended up, you know, we hunted for like seven days and on the seventh morning got a bull. It was the only elk we saw the whole trip. Somebody else bumped him. He came running past and, you know, 200 yards, got a nice shot. He was, and he's still the biggest bull I've ever shot. That's incredible. Um, but from there started thinking, all right, the, you know, there's got to be some better seasons for this. And I, 2017 ended up going to Colorado for archery and my wife came with me there and we had some success there. And then after 2017, I started to do like multiple states a year. So I did 18. I did. Colorado twice and then Wyoming and then 19 Colorado, Wyoming, Arizona, and then the same thing last year. But that was the, that was the genesis. And now I, I, to double back to your question about the resources and figuring it out, just starting somewhere is probably the best way to go doing it. And then once you get there, you kind of figure out some of the details. I think it's not the most thought out way to go about it, but you don't have to put a ton of research into it. You can get I think most of it's getting experience, but now I use Onyx and GoHunt, and that pretty much serves as the resources to figure out application strategies for, you know, all the states. I do Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Oregon, and Montana. And they, you know, they release strategy articles, tell you exactly what to do uh, from a overall perspective. And most of the, the strategy is collect points until, uh, you know, hunt the over the counter areas and collect points and the rest of them. And, you know, every couple of years you'll get to do a pretty nice hunt. Go hunts kind of become a pretty wild thing. Cause I mean, you can, they have everything on there. I mean, it'll show, like tell you the tag process, like give you all the harvest reports for, you know, individual WMUs, all that stuff. And I mean, the subscription to that's like pretty reasonable, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's like 150 bucks or something like that. That's, um, that's pretty normal across the board. If you're going to use any kind of assisting, you know, software or whatnot, it, it's pretty typical. One fifty. I mean, the amount well of stuff on it. there is like I I don't have it personally because we were going to get it whenever we were going out there, and I was like, well, there's no point in getting it if we're not leaving Pennsylvania this year. But like when I was looking at the amount of knowledge that is on there is like kind of scary. There there are even just if you were just wanting to go to one state, you can go on and filter. If you're Colorado over the counter, you can figure out, I will say this. If you don't want to spend the money, you can do all of, they just aggregate data that is free online. And it's a matter of if you can find it. And you can for like, if just going to Colorado, you can go and find all of the information on there. But when you start to do a couple states, if you think about your time, you, I've saved more than $150 of my own time by trying to find some of this data. Like some states are really easy. Some states like Arizona are hard to find the data. But yeah, for Colorado too, they're, elk hunting's a big business for them. And their CPW publishes a ton of easy information on kind of like where to, how to get started. They've got hunt planners that you can call into that actually isn't a bad resource. That's pretty wild. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> so two things I took from this whole thing. One, I'm glad you had the hunting thing in your dating profile because you obviously found an A plus wife. Yeah, God bless to, you. To, to <laughs> take care of your shit, to deal with your shit. And two, 
what the hell do you do for a living to enjoy this kind of lifestyle? Because that's kind of a big deal. I mean, I, I think that uh, a lot of people that want to do what you're doing, they kind of probably ask that question, I would imagine. If I had an ordinary job, I guess, I would not be able to, to do this to some end. I'm fortunate, so I've got a real estate business. We buy properties, fix them, and rent them. Uh, and we do like usually single family homes or portfolios of homes. And for my side of the business, we also have a construction company that supplements that business. But for my side of it, I can run it all from anywhere, right? I, it's all a lot of technology involved. So as long as I have service, I can do exactly what I need to do. And, and to be honest with you, the, it's not all glory on the hunting side. Like a lot of the hunts, it's, I'll go to Colorado and I'll hunt the morning and I'll be back to my, you know, I usually stay in my camper. Uh, I'll be back to my camper by like one, two o'clock. And then I work till nine, 10 PM. Yeah. Get up and just do it again. But it's allowed me, you know, this fall, I was pretty much either in Wyoming, Colorado or Arizona from end of August through end of November. You know, I came home a couple of times about to hunt deer (laughs) at home and had to take care of some meetings and stuff. But, Outside of that, my job, I, it would be hard to do it otherwise. You certainly could. And I'd probably just do it differently. Hunt all day, every day while you're there. But I'd kind of stretch the trips out and allow myself to just work evenings. And, it, and the other thing is the time zone difference, too. It actually, sometimes, it, depending if you want to work morning or evening, it can, can benefit you uh, from East Coast to Mountain Time. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, to all the regular jackoffs like us that are listening to this right now, you just made everybody insanely jealous. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's just good business practice. Yeah, and no, and man, mean, awesome. one, you're double dipping on the real estate part. And then when you go to fix a house, it's, oh, hey, hey, I got a construction company that's going to go ahead and do the work too. So let me make money on that. Right. So, I mean, you got good business ideals. And then on top of that, you're grinding. I mean, there's nobody that's going to question the fact that what you do and, and why you get to do it is because of your effort and your hard work. I mean, that's that's what it boils down to. And like you're saying, you might extend a trip out three months, but just even hunting half a day, you're constantly keeping track of what these herds are doing. So I feel like you're at a better advantage than someone that might only have 10 days and gets a hunt all day. Yeah. You know. And you don't get t- there's a re- fatigue is a real thing from, you know. It's totally different when you're on day seven and you haven't seen an elk for seven days. Yeah. And, you know, getting up morning eight to go back out is a challenge. And I think it's a benefit the way I get to do it because that, you know, you get every evening off of hunting. So while I'm working, I mean, it is not strenuous activity, right? It's phone calls and spreadsheets. So I don't have to, you know, I get to rest every evening and be totally recharged every morning. And, and you know, I, I would say not every time I go out is that way. Sometimes it is hunt all day, the whole time. But for the most part, yeah, I got to keep the lights on. Got to mm-hmm. keep uh, keep working. And, and I will say too, like extremely fortunate to be able to run that business and have it succeed. And, and it, I couldn't do it any better in terms of drawing up a lifestyle to be able to hunt as much as I want to, and you know, still keep a job, right? Oh yeah. And I mean, that's kind of, I mean, anybody that's like been following Cameron Haynes or any of those dudes right now, like, I mean, it's the same deal. It's like, you know, if you really want to do it that bad, you know, you can make it happen. And I think that's like something that a lot of people don't understand that like have this, like, you know, 
tongue in cheek, like envy and like, oh, it must be nice. Well, shit. Yeah. It's like, well, hey, man, you want to go start a construction company and hunt yeah. for a month? Then go do it. Adjust your, your lifestyle to make it happen. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. You know, a lot of people that are jealous is because they don't want to put the effort in to do what you're doing to make it work. I know? mean, don't get me wrong. I'm jealous, but <laughs> it's a good not, jealousy. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't have a lot of glorious rest of the year though, right? Uh, you know, February, well, not December through, you know, July is 80 hour, 80, 90 hour weeks. And oh, yeah. this is the way it goes, but that's the sacrifice you make. And, you know, yeah. we're just again pretty fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And you can still do it without giving up your full time lifetime like goals or, you know, business ideals. Like you can still do it. You don't have to give up everything that you have to make this work. There's different things you can do to adjust your lifestyle to make it work for those three months that are most critical for you. If you really want to do the out west and, and hunt multiple states, that's it's not easily done, but you can do it. Having a wife that's on board, I feel like, is more than 50% of that equation, too, though, to be totally honest with you, speaking from experience. 70 to 80%. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah it, it, it's imperative. And you know, the other thing, though, too, is you really only need to commit, like, eight days, right? If that's if you want to do it once a year. And that's the first two years. I only went out well, first year once, second year twice. But I just became obsessed with it and decided that I wanted to do it more because it was enjoyable. You don't have to go out that many times. You know, you can go have one full week of hunting. That's a great week. And it isn't like a giant time commitment. A lot of people can get that off of work, but yeah, as far as the other side of it with your spouse and kids and everything like that, you definitely need cooperation there. Cause otherwise it, it couldn't happen. It would be uh tenuous. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Does your wife hunt? No, outside of the times with me. No, there's, you know, her family, uh, always gets just some good laughs out of the fact of how she was. And then when we went on that hunt last year, you know, there's a picture of her helping me break the elk down that, uh, always makes them laugh that, you know, you just wouldn't have seen her there a couple of years prior to that. But she, I give her credit because she was not afraid to do any of it, despite the fact that she doesn't hunt at all. She, you know, was more than happy to, uh, help with gut it and, well, we tried to do the gutless method first time <laughs> on an elk. Ended up being gutted. <laughs> I tried to do that. that. I tried to do it on a whitetail this year. It was a disaster. Yeah, that was I like just a wanted practice. to see if I could. Yeah, yeah. this was before we were uh, barred from heading west from work. But uh, yeah, we, were, we got a little weird there. <laughs> so is it going to happen this year? We're, we're planning an Oklahoma turkey hunt. That seems like that's going to happen. We were talking about doing spring bear, but I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure what the what the lay of the land is right now. But Oklahoma is kind of in our immediate future for turkey. But I mean, that's a big thing for us is turkey. So yeah. yeah well, that's a, it's a good way to get out of the house in in the spring for oh, sure. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that's probably my personally. That's my favorite thing to hunt, like for sure. Yeah, and the trips are easy. I mean, they're so much more affordable. You can do four or five turkey hunts to one elk trip. You know, cost wise and if if you have yep. the time, the nice thing about Turkey is, I mean, you can locate them pretty quick and get the job done in maybe just a long weekend, and you don't necessarily always need, you know, maybe 10, 8 to 10 days out there. So, it, and, and again, turkeys, most states, you can only hunt them half a day, so, yeah. you know, you're not grinding yourself out. And our, our trip is only four days out in Oklahoma, but we've never chased Rios before, and I've never been that part of the, state, part of the country, and it's going to be 
pretty exciting, I think. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. They're uh, elk with wings, right? They Exactly. You know, That's what everybody everybody said yeah. about it. Everybody said about it. It's kind of the same principles, at yeah, least. Typically the other way around, because we have turkey. They're like, yeah, elk are just really big turkeys with horns. <laughs> it's true, yeah. though, right? They're, you get the same excitement of calling them in, and, yeah. you know. And the good side about the turkeys is they're probably a, a lot less, well, I don't know. Every time I've seen it to hunt turkey locally, it's like somebody's getting shot, or you <laughs> see like 10 guys, or you call in 10 guys. Yeah, but yeah. I imagine Oklahoma's yeah. probably a little better than that. You, uh, actually, whenever you and I, like, initially, like, kind of made contact on Instagram, I guess this was, like, probably a year or two ago, we, like, I was busting your balls about a pheasant tag or something like that, and I think <laughs> yeah. you said your in-law, your in-laws are up by me, is that it, or is it, was it your family, because we were talking about it, because, I mean... No, that's right, my in-laws, in-laws live in New Wilmington. Yeah, so you, you, like, kind of yeah. have, you, you know this, how Wild West, you know western pennsylvania can be like for you know hunting in general let alone you know when you're actually calling stuff and there's idiot dudes tromping through the woods coming to you you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's exactly my uh that's my turkey hunting experience in a nutshell mm-hmm. i don't get it I'm, i just don't get it why see, are you coming to a hen call dude the one time one? <laughs> that one day me and you went out we we thought it was a guy calling back to us oh, and yeah. of course the one time we're being like idiots you know we start cutting back and it's a turkey that came in and we're like you gotta be kidding me <laughs> <laughs> but it happens so often you know mm-hmm. you just think that's what it is you know what it I mean? happened to me twice this year where i was calling and and i heard the other person i'm like that's a person 100 percent yeah. I said, just sit here, sit tight. We'll keep calling. Sure enough, here comes a guy walking right over the hill. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm not gobbling. Yeah. Why are you coming towards me? Like, if I'm a hen, why are you not sitting still and just, just hanging out? Yeah. Right. That, the hen's hanging up. Who cares? There's no gobble. Did you hear a gobble? Yeah. I think Jeff had the best though. That dude that came through the woods with the Davy Crockett hat on, <laughs> like, just like through like the Kool-Aid man coming through the wall. Like, oh yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's the craziest thing ever. I had one guy up the mountains that I went, we were just like, there's no vehicle, right? There's no vehicle and anywhere in sight. And we jump out and do what we, we typically do. You come up to a big piece of timber, you jump out, throw out a few calls, see if one answers, jump back in the truck, head down the road. I mean, it's middle of the day, whatever. And this dude comes running out of this brush pile, throwing his arms up at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, hey, buddy, I just let you know there's no birds here. You can leave now. We're out of here. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> Especially now with the COVID thing, man. That. Every parking lot's full yeah. turkey season. It was wild. So yeah, that was got- like the peak, everybody getting sent home from work last spring. I, I don't know about where you hunted down there, but I know like up in the Allegheny Forest where we hunt, it was like insane. There's all kinds of new guys out there just doing crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. Unsafe. Coming I mean, it's unsafe hens. for sure, especially in the spring uh, yeah. like that. Yeah. It it definitely gets western out there. I, I'll share with you my elk hunting goal that I'm now going to turn into a turkey hunting goal. <laughs> I want to call in a hunter with a camera crew because everybody wants to have their own hunting channel now. And you see a lot of guys running around. You can call them in with an elk call and they'll come <laughs> running at you with their whole camera crew in tow only to get to you and realize you're just, you know, some Joe Schmo with a bugle. <laughs> I want to do the same thing with Turkey. Well, dude, let me know. I'll bring the camera and we'll have our own <laughs> film crew waiting. It'll be like to catch a predator. <laughs> have a seat, sir. <laughs> Why so, did you come to this hand call? <laughs> would you care to elaborate on your stupidity? Uh, let's break this hunt down for you, huh? <laughs> That's incredible, actually. Yeah. I want to piggyback on that and turn it into an elk thing, uh, an elk question. So 
when you're out there, I mean, how do you separate the real bugles from the other people with bugle calls? Most of the time, it's obvious. Okay. Everybody's got the, there's the primos bugle that's a three note bugle that sounds like the most canned elk call you've ever heard. And that's usual. It's 100% of the time that call is a guy. <laughs> other than that, they make a lot of different noises. You know, they don't always, sometimes the worst bugle you'll hear, you might think, wow, that's somebody that's just learning to elk call. And it's a, it's a bull. That's so, my next question. Yeah, I've heard that about, I mean, <laughs> about turkeys too. It's the same yep. thing. Some of the ugliest sounding hens are like the biggest, nastiest ones. That bugling is like the most popular way to call. A lot of these areas that I hunt are so heavily pressured that they don't bugle a lot. And if you, you know, you'll hear bugling activity rarely, but uh, honestly, I hear a lot of the most success I've had bugling wise is early, early morning where it's, you know, free light or middle of the day type of stuff. And it, it just depends on the area and, and whatnot and, and the activity. But I know Colorado's so heavily hunted. They're usually pretty quiet. Um, I think I heard the only bugle I heard in Colorado this year was the bull that I killed. And there were three of them and they were going nuts. But they, you know, they, they eventually relate the fact that their bugling brings on pressure. And this year was like, particularly muted compared to other years because there were some really bad fires and i don't know if that had anything to do with it but it was smoky everywhere even if you weren't near a fire we weren't within 50 miles of a fire but it it smelled like you were in one and i think that played with their senses a little bit and and probably made the rut more muted than it had been in previous years so as far as bugling activity low and as far as differentiating them i i kind of operate under the sense that like if it's people always do like in a pattern you know they bugle every 30 seconds you probably know it's a it's a human but and when you get close enough to you can definitely tell whether it's real or not just because of the can you hear like the there's certain things you can't fake yeah exactly you can just hear but you don't have a big enough lung set to do like the full piece that an elk could do I, i suppose but you can get really close and when you're that close to them, you, you know, you know. And there's the other thing about L2 is those things are so loud, right? Some, they can be quiet when they want to, but nine times out of ten, they're breaking branches and they're, you know, trying to fit giant antlers through small pines or aspens. And you can just hear that. I mean, half the calling activity realistically in a good setup is smacking trees around, breaking branches, et cetera, and sounding like them yeah. beyond just the bugle anyway yeah i mean plus they're usually with a you know full harem of cows and, and that many big bodies and especially some of the timbered areas i mean they're going to be making noise they're going to be making a racket and you can hear them from hundreds of yards away from that side of it yeah i don't know if you know clint casper if you're familiar with who clint casper is but he yep. had a uh, similar experience i think this year out in it was either idaho i believe he was in idaho in a very high pressured unit it's either Idaho or Utah. Eh, it had to be Idaho, right? Either way. I don't know. You're, and, you don't want to talk about him. Yeah, like he's your best friend. I know. He's my boy, but he doesn't know that yet, but he will. <laughs> <laughs> but he was in an area, and, and that was similar tactics I'm hearing from you is where, you know, he was basically not calling at all because everybody out there, it's super high pressure. Everybody out there is calling. And what he would do is he'd get up super early in the midst of the night, listen for uh, bugles, and then he would move in and try to basically 
hunt them like turkeys where you just get in front of them and kind of keep quiet sometimes. Just get in front of them and keep keep at the herd. And he ended up shooting a really nice nice bull that way. But he never called one time, he said. A lot of the people yeah. have been saying in Colorado the wolf situation over like the last two or three years, they're like refusing to address it. And it's been getting like kind of crazy because there's a couple areas that I believe wolves are protected now. And they said that the overpopulation of the wolves is keeping them from bugling too. Because, I mean, it's a, it's a dinner bell for the wolves when they hear that, you know. In Idaho, that's part of the problem. Colorado doesn't have wolves yet, but they're, uh, they, they do. They've got like, or it's the bears, maybe. Wolf. I well, can't remember what they were saying now. It's been, <laughs> I Idaho has too that much problem. Info. Yeah, yeah, Idaho has that big time where, yeah. you know, and I think it was worse 10 years ago than it is now. Colorado's getting, you know, the voters of Colorado agreed to put wolves in the state by like 2023. So they're going to have the same situation. But I, I totally agree with, the spot it's more slip in and kill them silently than calling them and especially early season you've got a lot more possibility for success like that in the middle of the day calling is the way to go because it's it's very unless you bed them right you can glass them into their bed and you know exactly where they are and you've got the wind right and can slip in it's much easier like the middle of the day it's easy enough to get a bull that's in their bed if you can get within 200 yards of them call them into you and it's something to do from that like 9 a.m to 3 p.m window where otherwise you're pretty much sitting there doing nothing right it's it's slow yeah i know for him what was working was he was actually playing that bull off of other hunters because he was noticing as other hunters would call out he was witnessing that big herd bull just herd them up and take them over the hill in the opposite direction he was kind of playing it off that he would listen to other people calling and then he would watch them and he got them kind of patterned to where they kept coming up into one piece of dark timber and he got slipped in there. Sure enough, guy called out, they come in and he ended up shooting one. Pretty cool That's tactics. A, yeah. It's almost like whitetail oh, yeah. hunting if you think about it. I mean, not really the spot and stock part, but you know, whitetail hunting, most of the time you're yeah. sitting up in a patterning tree stand, them. patterning them yeah. and waiting silently, hoping that they don't know you're in their area at yeah. all. The one thing that is, was never really occurred to me until I was in the situation for the first time was how difficult it is to keep the, when a bull has five or six cows, you know, that's a small harem, right? If they've got 10 or 15, it's totally different. Keep it. You, that's so many sets of eyeballs that are looking. And generally those cows are going to be the first ones through. Mm-hmm. So you have to go undetected through that many sets of cows before, you know, you can even slip into the bull. So sometimes I, you know, I know a lot of guys like the early season before they've gathered cows. You know, the bulls will be together all summer. And then once the, you know, at some point in like late August, they generally break up from their bachelor groups and they go on their own. And that's like a really good time to hunt them before they, one, cause they're really easily callable if they don't have cows yet. And two, you don't have to get through 15 cows to get to the bull that you want. But that's the, it, it, it was a hard piece to figure out on the spot. You know, a lot of blown opportunities like that, that's for sure. Essentially like, uh, hunting the pre-rut here, same thing there pre-rut, but like all the bucks are just kind of cruising early in October looking, you know, to gather does. So basically the same principle. Yeah, very much the same. It, there's a lot of similarities between deer and elk. I mean, there, there's a lot of differences too, but more similarities than differences, I would say. 
yeah, it's really cool to like kind of be able to put it in. I mean, that, that's what we said we wanted to talk about was kind of demystifying, you know, going west and like how overwhelming it could be for someone from, you know, Western PA that grew up only hunting whitetail to be able to put it into terms like that, that like, you know, idiots like us understand. It's like, oh, oh yeah, I've been doing that for 10 years. That makes sense. And then, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Instead of going out there like, oh my God, I got to shoot this giant, you know, free range wild cow in the Rocky <laughs> Mountains. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's overwhelming until you, you know. And it's cool to be able to, you know, put that into terms that are, like, a little more relatable, I guess, to, you know, us folk. One thing, too, like, that maybe we're touching on for, you know, guys that are listening, is the cost side of it. And I think everybody thinks it's going to be, I mean, part of the reason I didn't want to go originally, too, was because I figured it would be, like, I got to shell out five grand or ten grand to go on a elk hunt. Yeah. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, it's not that expensive, right? At the end, you know, especially if you go with one or two buddies. If you go with two or three buddies and you drive out from Pennsylvania, you know, the gas is going to be 200 bucks a person, probably tops, right? You each have to buy your tag, 660 bucks in Colorado, and you have to feed yourself whether you're in Pennsylvania or in Colorado, yeah. and you're not feeding yourself high quality food. You know, you don't have to eat like, top of the line food the whole way right you yeah. you can you can get everything done in a budget and that's what i mean I, that's what i would say and you can use the same gear you use at home that you can use out west you know certainly high you know ku gear or first like gear or whatever yeah that's it has its advantages but you don't need it right it isn't a requirement to go there and the same thing with the rifles you know you don't need a special elk hunting rifle a 30-06 probably like the most common caliber, it will kill an elk, right? And a bow, you know, again, I had a buddy this year, my buddy Greg, who we went to Wyoming with, he used his, like, dad's bow from 1990, and he didn't even shoot it <laughs> until, like, August. I mean, it has, like, a 50-pound draw and an aluminum arrow, and he killed a, you know, 300-inch bull with it. It, oh, it was incredible. incredible. But you don't need to have a, you know, a new Matthews to go elk hunt. You can definitely do it all for less than you think. And then the, to, the way I've done it is kind of add a little bit of gear over time, right? I didn't start with everything just as time goes along. You know, every year, add one or two pieces of gear that you think would be valuable to you. Yeah. And in five years, you'll have everything you need. Yeah. What's that priority list look like? What would you say is like the top one or two investments your first year out? Is it boots or pack? Or, you know, what would you what would you say? I still run crappy boots, to be honest with you. I got a <laughs> set of crispies this year for the first time, but I run like hundred dollar Under Armour boots. You know, they're mm-hmm. nothing special, and I've never had any problems with it. I know a lot of guys are really big on that. I think I'm probably more like lucky with the foot side of things, like don't get blisters, don't have arch problems, etc. But you know, the most bang for your buck in terms of like valuable pieces of equipment. I, I think a lot of guys will run this in their whitetail setup anyway. It's a bino harness, rangefinder, and binoculars. Um, you know, that allows you to get a long way. I don't use a tripod. Everything I'm doing is like dark timber type of hunting. You can't see more than a couple hundred yards anyway, but that, you know, it, it's obviously a necessity whether you're hunting with a bow or a rifle to have your range uh, and to be able to have some level of zoom with an optics. The 
one thing that you may not have if you're just coming from hunting whitetails to going out west would be the appropriate backpack. You need something that is a frame setup that you can haul the meat out with, you know, if you're successful. Not, you know, you, you can't use a Jan's cord to get your elk out of the woods. <laughs> I take that challenge. <laughs> <laughs> you might be able to, but it might take you a long time. <laughs> I will say about the pack, me and Jeff, I mean, when we were in our planning stages, that, that was the first thing we bought. We went and bought Kafaru bags. And around here, just around here, I use that thing for every. I, I don't know how I survived out here without that bag to this point. To be honest with you, I use that thing for freaking everything. Hauling tree stands. You know, any, any, even just like going for a walk in the woods. I, I love that thing. Yeah. Like, but you guys aren't the typical Northwest PA hunters either. I mean, you're doing a lot of hiking back in long distances into big yeah. woods, going up some pretty severe, uh, terrain. I mean, you guys do it a little different than your typical, I have a hundred acres of private land and I hunt a couple public pieces person. We like to, we like to LARP, you know, yeah. <laughs> like we're out West. <laughs> LARP. <laughs> but I mean, the bag, the bag was a game changer. Like that's something that I, I would have not being out there, obviously, but like hauling like a tree stand on my back instead of having, you know, the stupid straps they give you having it in like a bag like that, like on a good frame is like a game changer, like a complete game changer. Yeah. I packed uh three deer out this year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's Did great. Do you guys run with a satellite phone at all? No, that is something we do not have. Which we've it's been actually it. talking about. We've been just getting into the radio game a little bit. So what, what would you, uh, like entry level satellite phone, what would you say? The same company I, that I've always used is like the, I know they work because I've had to press the SO, I, I didn't have to. I accidentally pressed the SOS button. <laughs> oh, and uh, isn't that like a $10,000 button they say <laughs> on some of them out there? It didn't cost me a thing. Okay, good. Uh, Outside of like some scared family, because they call like your emergency contact mm-hmm. first, they think you're dead, <laughs> and then once they realize you're not, you know, life is much better. But <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I use the InReach Explorer, and they make a mini, which That's you the can Garmin get, one, like, right? Yeah, That's yeah, the one okay. I hear about on any podcast. Uh, a lot of people is the InReach and the InReach Mini. It it is a no brainer, right? Would you, you can buy that thing for like 300 bucks and this, you can get a freedom plan the month you go out to hunt with it, pay 50 bucks, you know, you get unlimited messaging and then shut it off when you're done. It's one of the ones that when people don't have them, I hope a lot of guys that don't have them. Why would you not? If you, you don't have service in 90% of the areas that you hunt. If you get to the top of a mountain, you're going to generally have service outside of that. You don't, if you are by yourself and you get injured, you know, you need a way to get extracted. So it, it's a, it's one of the ones where, yeah, you don't, I guess you don't have to have it, but you would sure feel stupid if you died and you didn't spend the 300 bucks. <laughs> no, that is something that you, I've been looking at. You probably for wouldn't quite a feel while. anything, but yeah. yeah. Everybody else would think you're stupid. Well, I know even just where <laughs> I hunt, like up in the Allegheny Forest, like I don't have reception 80%, even on the top of mountains, like in some of the spots. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's actually been something that's been in the back of my mind. Yeah. Like, well, also a little, uh, cheater pro tip here. If you, if you are a PA resident and you're hunting PA and you do have service, the go hunt PA app actually has that same emergency button, uh, feature where you can put your emergency contacts in and it will contact all of them plus like an SOS button basically. Oh, so yeah. you can use that app. I have it set up on my phone. I mean, obviously you have to have cell phone service. 
But if you're hunting, you know, Northwest PA right here where you typically have service, you can use that Go Hunt PA app and it does the same thing. It has a little SOS feature. Yeah. Pretty neat. That's cool. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, that's nice. Yep. Yep. Have you ever had a, like a incident where you thought, you know, it was kind of sketchy? Like I know you said your, your hip was kind of giving you problems there. Did you ever get back where you felt like, you know, run into a situation you thought you might have to use it? No, ne- never put myself in a spot where I thought I should or may need it, but it's comforting knowing that you can push the limits that you have that if you want to. Right. Cause I, where it would come into question is maybe, you know, you know, you're at a spot where you should turn around or you've got to go over some steep cliff and you're not totally positive that, you know, you're going to do it, uh, and keep all your limbs. And if you do, you know, you can, you know, hit the button and, and get in and out. I've heard of a couple of guys that get, you know, take horses in and get kicked in the ribs by a horse right, right. and have to push the button. And it's, you know, huge for him. But I've never had, to me, it's mostly communication. Yeah. Like I'll actually use mine with the unlimited messaging feature. It comes up as an app on your phone and you can text just like you're texting from your phone. The communication's a hair slow, right? It takes like, 10 minutes for a message to go through, but you can keep everybody kind of informed where you are. And that's about it. But fortunately, the only time I pressed the button, I was totally safe. And by the time I got to actual cell service and they called me, you know, realized that, uh, that I had left the SOS button open and left my phone in my backpack oh, and it yeah. worked. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I think they do a good job. <laughs> It probably helps too for you, especially that you got your wife with you. So she's, you know, a reasonable head. Like you probably shouldn't go over that, uh, that little mountain there <laughs> might break some bones. I know if uh, my wife was out hunting with me, I'd be climbing a lot less trees and doing a lot less sketchy stuff. I mean, I watched you literally just climb a tree to get an arrow out of the tree. Like not just climb the tree. Like he's a freaking Ming Mong, like a little monkey climbing that damn thing. <laughs> yeah. The wife won't let me get away with those things. No, the Heathers, the Heathers don't tolerate that. Man. <laughs> this is why women live longer, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. He's also shooting broadheads at squirrels. So I mean, <laughs> do with that information what you will, but <laughs> good video. If you're, if you're shameless plug. <laughs> If I shot a $30 broadhead into a tree, I'd be going to get it, too. That's exactly oh, yeah. what I said. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. If you need some broadheads, you should hit up our giveaway we had going on there. Oh, Another yeah. shameless plug. Yes. Giveaway is happening now. So we... Uh, what broadhead are... Well, we don't have to get into broadheads because that's a touchy subject. But we are giving away some veteran broadheads. It's a little not-so-well-known company, but they're making a huge push right now. Uh, they've been out for a long time, and they make some really quality broadheads, so... Get on over and check out that giveaway. Channel turkey sponsor. broadheads too, right? Yeah, turkey. Oh broadheads. yeah, turkey heads. They, I mean, he is the original gobbler guillotine guy. He is the OG uh, creator of that broadhead. So the guy's done some pretty amazing stuff. So as far as your hunts in your three states this year, is there what was like the one that was like probably the the most memorable of the three? Uh, I don't know. I I don't know the good answer to that. The Arizona one was memorable because I. I brought my family with me on that and I got to take my son up to the elk, uh, cause it was like, you could coincidentally drive to it, uh, where the thing ended up dying. So that was cool, but it was, it was definitely a smaller bull, harder hunt. I don't know. I, they, they all were a little bit special to me and, and enjoyable. I liked, uh, Colorado was, was probably reflecting on it the hard, the best one cause I, it was 
day five that I shot my bull, which was the last day of the hunt, and I did it. I did not see an elk for five days and nights. I hunted all day, every day during that. So it was a uh, it was a relief to finally get one more than anything. Oh, when you're hunting anything, no matter what, I mean, you go three days without seeing anything at all. I mean, that's like that'll uh, test your nuts for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. That <laughs> way to put that. One. It, it, it's not enjoyable in the moment. No. Oh, dude, when you're getting your ass kicked for, you know, days on end, especially out there, because, I mean, dude, it's not like you're walking to, you know, you're driving 20 minutes down the road to state game lands and walking 100 yards in the woods. It's like, oh, no, I got to get up at four and hike three miles up a mountain, like a literal mountain to not see anything. I mean, that's a bigger kick in the balls for sure. Not to keep saying balls now, but. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? yeah, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, when you think back on it now sitting here in February, I'd rather be out there seeing nothing than, uh, sitting at my desk all day. So oh, you're right. I, gu- I guess I can't right. complain. You're absolutely right. Just yeah. gotta embrace the grind. It feels good being out there. Mm-hmm. Just gotta keep reminding yourself where you're at yeah. and what you're doing. Well, it makes it that much better whenever you go up there and you get to put your hands on fur too, yeah. though. Well, oh, you know what? That's a good topic though. I mean, the mindset is probably mental game is probably one of the biggest when you're out there and doing that long of a trip, especially. Yeah. Why don't you go over a couple, maybe your early downfalls or what you if it, experienced with your mindset early on when you first started going out west and kind of where you're at now and what worked and what you kind of regret doing i would say i don't think my mindset has changed in the five years and it was you know i'm fairly goal oriented so the idea i don't know that this is the approach for everybody but it's the approach that i take i want to if if I'm going on a hunt, it isn't to spend time with friends or family, right? I can spend time with friends and family from December through August. You know, my objective when I'm hunting is to kill something. You know, I don't know. Uh, the biggest thing, it is it is hard when you're there and you're, you know, you screw it up. Because it takes so much time and energy to get an opportunity. And you might get an opportunity. So it's yeah. disheartening if you miss or... You know, or, you know, the other thing that I would say too is like wounding something, it, you know, can kind of give you the same, like, feeling. For me, that's that's worse. I think, I mean, for me personally, like mentally, that is a worse thing. Like when you wound something, you're like, oh, fuck, not on, did I just screw up? You know, I might, you know, never going to see this animal and it's, you know, suffering. It's got an arrow sticking out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you, well, that's, if I, I'm, you know, I don't know where you guys sit on that fence. You know, some people are, if you wound it, you know, you punch your tag or, you know, you know what, if you wound it, that's part of the game. Keep hunting. I mean, it, I, I mean, it is. That happens. That, that, that's something that people right. will look down on for. It's like, dude, if you look down on me and you tell me that you've never done that before, you're mm-hmm. a lion sack of shit. You know what I mean? Like, and if you made all the efforts, if you, if you, it would be different if you just showed up on opening day, never shot your bow, opened it out of the pack, opened your yeah. crossbow out of the package. And, you know, you went out there and you shot something in the ass. Yeah, yeah that's, you know, you, you hold a high degree of responsibility for that. If you made every effort and you shot your bow every couple of days and, you know, you put a thousand arrows through and, you know, you tuned your broadheads and you're feeling really good and you screw up. It's Shit definitely happens. no reason. Right. It, yeah. it happens and you got to stick with it. But the, you know, the mental side of it to me is it is... It is only mental. You just have to maintain the right mindset that you want to, you know, you're there to have success and you give it everything you've got. And if you do go home, 
empty-handed, then you you tried your best. You know, I this year in Wyoming, the first trip that I left, you know, I went out and hunted seven days and didn't get the pole. Then it it is a shitty feeling getting back in your truck to drive twenty four hours home, you know, with and you didn't accomplish the goal. Yeah. I went back out and did it again. I ended up getting a Wyoming bull the second trip out. But it you know, that wasn't the plan originally. Originally I didn't have a second trip in mind. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to get it and at least driving home I could feel like keep my head up that I tried. If I if you quit like three days into it, you know going on your drive home that you're gonna think, Oh, you might not even get home before you want to be back out there. Yeah. No matter yeah. how measurable it is at the time. So it's just keeping the right mindset yeah. and and I think that applies to obviously more than just hunting. It's just sticking with it and that that's pretty much as simple as it is. I mean, I know for me even on a PA buck tag, say I miss a, and I did this year with a, with a gun even worse, but I missed a buck. So say any normal person listening to this that hunts whitetail deer in our area, you may miss or, you know, wound an animal that you don't recover at some point if you're hunting with a bow, because it happens. I mean, mm-hmm. you're hunting with archery equipment. There's a much greater percentage chance that that happens at some point. I know my level of disgust and, and anger after that happens to me on a whitetail that I just spent, you know, $60 for a tag. Yeah. If I was out west on a, you know, once, well, not once in a lifetime, but on a big trip like that, spending decent amount of money and I shot and missed an elk, I don't know if I'd ever get over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd beat myself up for the next two years probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I hunt a lot by myself. Like, not to keep going back to Turkey, but like the first week I go to the camp, I'm completely by myself and I'm, you know, hiking back in there and, you know, you're waking up yourself at, you know, four in the morning and like by day three, like the mental commitment is like, you know, you're, you're paying a higher toll mentally to get up. And then I know a couple of years ago, I missed this one on Thursday after, you know, I just got my teeth kicked in completely by myself, you know, and like that mental hurdle is like, it can be that that'll break you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care how, you know, dedicated you are like that, that can break you, especially yeah. when you're completely by yourself, like that mental, it, it, it's completely different. Like then what, if you have somebody, it's like, Oh dude, that sucks. Come on, let's go back over to the other hill or something. It's like, no nah, dude, I want to go like curl up in a ball down in the river and drown <laughs> right now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So yeah, I mean, John, you've done it both. I mean, you've been out West with other people in your company and you've been out West by yourself. Uh, maybe get into, how you overcome that kind of different uh, approach when you're out there by yourself in that different mindset compared to being with people that can lift you up and lift your spirits up. It It is 100% a mindset. And all you have to do is adjust your view of it, in my opinion. And it's really hard to do that in the moment, right? You miss that shot on a bull, you know, you clip a branch and that was your one shot in five days. You feel like you're in the dumps and you're by yourself. The advantage to having people with you is that they can pick you up out of that slump without any inspiration from yourself. The harder part is doing it when you're just by yourself because you have to kind of take a step back for a second and think about it, right? All right, you missed, but you, how much did you learn to get to the spot where you put yourself there? Because it is not easy to get in a position where you have a shot opportunity, right? You can't just walk out into the woods and be there. It, it took you how long to get there, and you learn their patterns, or you learn this or that about the particular situation and terrain that you're in, and put yourself in the right spot. You're that much more likely 
to do it again. And and I think you've probably heard the saying that like the success rate might be ten percent on elk. Well, ninety percent of the people are the same are in that ten per yeah. You know, it's the same ninety percent of people every year that are killing those ten percent. So it's you learn so much and it's you have to take that experience for what it's worth, realize that it made you a little bit better and you're better than you were right before then. And as long as you know in the back of your mind that you put the preparation in, just pick yourself up and do it again and try it again. And eventually you're going to get success. And and I think that's what it, you know, pretty much what it boils down to for me. Because again, there have been those, you know, hunt all day and then you got to wake up the next morning at three o'clock and do a three or four mile hike. Some in, in the moment, it is not appealing. I've had a lot of success thinking about now, like what I would feel like in February if I didn't get up or I slept in and, you know, just skip, skip to the morning hunt because it, because this time of year means, uh, probably more to me for, for like thinking about it that way. Right. I, I just hate not hunting season so much that, and I want it to be hunting season 12 months out of the year that, you know, willing to put in, willing to endure some pain for it, I, I think is, so I guess at the end of the day, adjusting your own mindset. Mm-hmm. And it takes a certain, you know, level of toughness, I guess, to do it. I mean, you don't certainly don't need to be uh, ridiculously mental tough, but I, I think anybody can do it with the right mindset. If you could give, like, just, I guess we kind of like skirted around it, like, sort of talking about this, but like three things, like someone from around here that's like, you know, been a whitetail hunter, that's been thinking about going out west, like three things you could say, like right off the top of your head, like they're for planning to go out there like what would you tell them just you know shooting from the hip like if they wanted to go out west what would you tell them figure it out right from a i would say from first your financial perspective set aside 1500 bucks and it seems like a lot of money but it isn't you can make it right if you need to get a second job you know delivering pizza or driving for i guess uber doesn't exist right now but if you need to drive for doordash or for delivery service, Instacart, do it and take the money and have the responsibility to set it aside and actually save it. Don't spend it on beer or whatever the hell. Well, you know, Jeff, put your separate checking bitch. account. Damn it. This is horrible <laughs> advice. <laughs> I, I, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow, but it's a number one. Yeah. And then second piece to that, once you know you have your money, put in the repetitions with what you need to do at home, right? You can do one, you know, being in physical shape is something that people probably talk too much about, but it is, it depends how much you're going to like or not like your hunt. And it's very hard to go from 800 feet of elevation to 10,000 feet of elevation and suffer no consequences. There's no way you can do it. There's no way to acclimate immediately. It takes a period of time, no matter how much water you drink and how much Advil you take, but you can be in shape before you go out there and you can know your equipment, right? You can know whether you have a 1990 bow or a brand new Matthew, you can know how to shoot it and what your capabilities are and you can practice as much as you can. That's probably point two. Um, and point three is doing the research. I think the best thing in terms of general research would be a, a two prong approach is one boil down to a unit. Don't spend so much time that you get analysis paralysis and you look at everything and you don't know what to make of it. Either 
find a buddy that's been out there and can give you a point of reference. And don't, obviously, with respect to uh, taking somebody's spot, that's a pretty sensitive topic, but <laughs> if they say, hey, go to GMU 81, all right, you've got a place to start. But find the biggest thing, too, when you're if you've never set foot in an area, have plans A through E on spots that you can check out that are not easily accessible because you're going to run into whatever over-the-counter tags have there's going to be guys there and you just can't get discouraged by seeing guys because they're everywhere and you usually see them by a road because they're too lazy to get off of it or they're on their side by side or whatever. So have a handful of spots that you can check out. You go to one, you don't see the appropriate amount of sign or animals or anything. All right. Next time move to spot B, you be mobile with it, but have the plan before you go out there because it's not, you don't want to be spending hunt time developing a plan. If you run through your whole plan before you get, and you're still in your hunt, then it's a whole other story to think of something else. But you don't want to be day two in your hunt, and you've exhausted your only option, and now you don't know where to go. Because that's when you go home. If you have a plan, and you can kind of stick to your plan, it's a lot easier to stay out there and keep yourself accountable. Makes sense. Now, going back to point two, I mean, part of the preparation, if someone's doing, say, an early season or an opener in archery season, would you suggest that they get out there maybe a couple of days early on their trip just to try to get a little more acclimated to the, you know, the height and basically do that before you're climbing the mountain? You know, get out there, just kind of live in that atmosphere for a little bit. If you've got the time, absolutely. But if you're on a time, if you're time sensitive, if you've got seven days and you can have three of them preseason and four of them in the season, then no. Make sure you have a bow in your hand the whole time for the, your, your, your seven day window. Because, but the reality and what I do, you can, you will, like, do yourself more harm by pushing it to the limit the opening day you get there. One, if you drive it like straight through, you know, your body just sat for 24 hours in a car in the same position. I mean, you got up to pee a couple of times and get gas. It just isn't enough that, you know, you can jump right into putting a 40-pound pack on your back and hiking into the woods. So I I would say if you have unlimited time, preseason scouting is invaluable. I'm, my personal preference, I go out in the summer every year and spend time out there. And, and, you know, it's a good family, little vacation, but you can also get into all your spots, see what you like. If you don't have the time to do that, just the first day you get there, Take it generally easy. The second day, you can start to work into it, and you'll be fine. If you drink enough water and, you know, don't push it. I, I think the bigger thing for the for archery, too, shot angles that you don't think about, right? It's not... It, we have rolling hills here, but it's not... what you. You're not going to have, like, a 100-foot drop shot, you know. It, shot angles are something to practice. And practicing at multiple distances. I, I think it's worth being able to shoot from 20 to 60 and, and having, being prepared to do so. Or even if you're from 20 from 40, 20 to 40, know your, know every shot, you know, have some, a little bit of practice range finding without a range finder. Cause I, I can tell you of all the archery bulls that I've actually shot, I've ranged two of them, right? I've probably killed seven archery bulls and a lot of times you just don't have the chance, right? It's such a flash thing. You have to know what does 40 yards look like? What does 30 yards look like? And be able to just react to that. Um, 
that's something you can practice here and you can know what 50 yards looks like here and you can get, you know, uh, an elk looks the same in your ha- site housing at 50 yards at home as it does in Colorado. I, the, the one challenge is getting a 3D elk target. I think it's probably like <laughs> yeah. 2,500 bucks, but yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. gonna, that's it, boys. You heard it. We're gonna go get an elk target and we're gonna hoist that thing up in the air about 40 yards. Shoot and we're just gonna shoot pinata. at it. Yeah, like a big pinata, elk pinata. <laughs> we're gonna fling arrows into it. <laughs> With nothing but the sky behind it. And that's yeah. what we're gonna do to practice. But now, I mean, that makes sense. And I guess piggybacking on what you're saying too is your distances are gonna look different, you know, at different elevations because if you're a severe downward, you know, that elk's going to look different than it is on flat ground. Or if it's up above you, it's going to look different than it would be on flat ground to try to get somewhere where you can practice and, and know those ranges and what it looks like at up and down and flat ground, I think would be a huge benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you've tested your stuff. You know, you know what, what things are shoot. You know, you've tested your broadheads. You know, the move isn't to screw your broadhead on the day you go out to hunt, right? It's not going to shoot the same. Your field point and your fixed blade broadhead aren't going to shoot the same. Now, if you're shooting an expandable, got it. You know, that will shoot the same. And that's totally fine. I, I, you know, I shoot a fixed blade, but I don't, I'm not the anti expandable. They work, right? And they're a good tool for a lot of people. But, but the same point remains of testing everything that you can test at home so that when you're there, you're not spending time testing equipment. You're spending time trying to kill an elk. Yeah. Would you suggest an elk setup for your arrows separately from your whitetail, or do you prefer to get uh, that sweet spot where you can use an arrow setup on both? I, I use the same on both. So I'm like 490 grains about, but wow. I'm short, right? I'm 5'8", my draw length's 26 and a half. You know, I don't have a very long arrow, but I shoot a Easton FMJ. It's like 13.1 grains per inch. I... Um, Damn. And I shoot the Meat same missile. thing for elk. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, I my bow's like 74 pounds. Um, you know, I shoot a 100-grain broadhead, no, like, weighted insert or anything like that. I'm not a big front-of-center guy. You know, and I've never had issues with recovery, penetration, anything like that. I mean, I've done frontal shots, shot elk at 75 yards. I've shot elk at 10 yards. And it they all work the same in terms of effectiveness. Yeah. And as far as deer goes, I've, you know, never had the chance or need to adjust it for deer. I know some guys like a faster arrow maybe for deer, so they don't duck it. Or you you know, there there's a handful of advantages to a faster arrow, but I've I like to keep it as simple as I possibly can and not mess with it between you know, because I, I will go like from one hunt to the next, right? I came home from our so I'm in two D where I live, oh, okay. and when I archery hunt here, or excuse me, 2B, but when I, it, the season opens like two weeks early, so I'll come right from yeah. Wyoming and just hop up in a tree stand as soon as I get home, and I don't have to fart around with a different arrow or adjusting my pins or anything like that. Makes total sense, and it, it goes to show again that you can go against what the quote-unquote experts say and also eases the minds of Eastern hunters because you're taking your whitetail setup out west and having success with it. So that eases the mind that you don't need to go out and buy, waste the money on a whole new arrow setup and put all this money into building it up heavy and, and FOC and high FOC and everything like that. So it, 
it's another good tip that when you're starting off, you really don't need to do that stuff. There and the biggest thing I, I listen to a lot of material about arrow setup, and I picked one and I run it for both of them, and it's a heavier setup. I don't know that you can run the light 300 grain total arrow weight on an L because it, the you know, it's maintaining kinetic energy mm-hmm. and depending on what bow shop you go to, that may be, they may put you into the lightest, fastest option you can get. And is it ideal for elk? Absolutely not. Can you kill an elk with it? You sure can. It's shot placement and then not, you know, you, if you've got the light setup, don't take a, a 60 yard shot, you know, get within 30 yards and don't shoot it in the shoulder, shoot it behind the shoulder and you're going to get a pass through. Even if you've got a slightly lighter setup. Uh, and so it's, Knowing what you got and adjusting accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, if you can make it work on your setup that you have in heavier area, obviously it's a better advantage. But what we're saying is you don't need to go guru crazy. You don't need to do that. What the biggest part is knowing your equipment, knowing what your kinetic energy is, knowing how fast your arrow is, knowing everything and where your penetration is going to be, because you are shooting, the reality is you're shooting a much larger creature. Yeah. And if you have a quartering shot that you may not know is quartering, you may need those extra three or four inches of penetration on your arrow to get that second long, right? And not make it go a hundred miles and, and die in somebody else's property or something like that. So I mean, it's a big deal. I've gotten into it this year a little bit more seriously with my own setup. But it definitely is a huge deal to know your setup. I think, you know, the one thing that guys, whitetail guy may not think about too. So uh, two points to this maybe that would be valuable to your listeners. You're think about calling in an elk. It's coming right at you, right? If you're solo calling in, you don't have a calling sequence. It has to come through you, right? So there's a lot of ways to thinking about that and a whole nother conversation about like doorway principle and calling an elk and where you and actually doing your setup that it's something if you're going to go out west for archery elk hunting spend a whole nother episode talking about where and how you form a setup because it's make or break on the elk in terms of where you call and where the elk's going to stop where it thinks it's going to see you but getting back to the subject it's going to be a frontal right you're going to have a frontal shot which is not something that's common for deer out of it all the deer I've shot, I don't know that I've ever shot a frontal deer with a bow, right, from a tree stand. It just is an odd angle. But it's very common for elk, and you need that penetration. So thinking about the anatomy of them and practicing that frontal is definitely valuable. And then the other piece that would probably be valuable, too, is the actual sight. Because things happen so fast, you don't always have the ability to adjust. So like a lot of guys like that single pin slider where they can move it and whatever else. Well, if something goes from tw- you know, elk are big, 800 pound bull that's tall and has long legs, it takes three steps and now it's changed 15 yards or 10 yards. You don't want to have to then put your bow down, change your slider and pull it back up. You need to be able to go from top pin to bottom to second pin down and know that that's 10 yards. And, and it's a simple thing, but I shoot a five-pin slider. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and then I'll slide down to 70 and down to 80, and the rest is pin gaps. But 
that's a huge advantage for Western bow hunting. And I use the same, you know, I don't have a budget to have like four sites. I use the same site for whitetail as I use for elk. And I've never had a problem with like identifying or, or the, you know, people complain about the pin, all the pins confusing them in the setup and whatever else. I mean, maybe you don't shoot your bow enough or, no, or whatever 100% else. But, they're saying that shit. Yeah. Right. Again, goes back to knowing your equipment and being comfortable with your equipment. Right. Exactly. But it's, those are, those are valuable to think about. I, yeah. It's been, uh, I've learned that the hard way. And I'd say those are like consensus type of points, you know? Yeah. I mean, whether you're using a single pin slider or you're using a five pin, you, you need to know, like, even if you have that single pin slider and you're setting it at 30 yards, you need to be able to shoot that out to 50, 60 yards and know where to hold your holdover. I mean, I think if you can do that and you can shoot it at 37 yards, you can shoot it at 46 yards and you can do it accurately with one pin, then yeah, you can get away with that single pin. But Again, like you said, you haven't even had time to range find a deer, uh, an elk, sorry, an elk five out of the seven times or whatever. If you're trying to slide your pin and you might only have a very small gap to shoot and, and take that animal, you got to know where to hold. I mean, you, and you have to know where to hold over on an elk compared to a deer because, you know, if you're, if you're saying at 37 yards, I'm holding the back of a deer. Well, that elk body's obviously much larger. So you, you just need to, you just need to go back to, taking the time and putting the time in to know your equipment, that stuff's free. You know, that doesn't take money to do. Yeah. You know. Oh, 100%. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Elk is, and an elk's 28 inches. You've got a lot. You don't, it might be one thing where you miss a deer. It's, I don't want to say it's hard to miss an elk, but you've got a lot of body to hit. Yeah. Yeah, which which may in, increase your odds of killing the animal, but also increases your odds of wounding the animal, you know, and not recovering it, so... There's a lot more Absolutely. body there if you make a bad shot to uh, hurt it, yeah. To hurt it, right. So, well, we got like, we got super tactical on both of these episodes. Yeah, I know. These are very informative. <laughs> Hot we're, and heavy. I love it. We're, what are we at? An hour, hour and 12? We're just about an hour and 12. So, I mean, I don't know. Do you want to, you want him to tell any of his stories? Have we heard a story yet? Do you want a story or do you want to hit last question, last call here? Oh, I don't know. What, uh, what do you do with the story? What's the, what type of story? I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, two Fridays ago, you know, $80 at the strip club and then, you know, face down at a ditch somewhere, you can tell us that. Or, you know, if you want to tell us about an elk, you tell us. <laughs> I prefer elk story if that's okay. <laughs> hey, we, told jo- we told John Collins, he asked what kind of picture. I said, skin and death. And he said, okay, babe. So. <laughs> you got to take your shirt off before you post your next elk picture. I prefer <laughs> your picture. Heidi. I am the wrong person to say that to. I can assure you of that. <laughs> Jeff, you, you got any questions? You, no. Oh, no, the girls like that. By girls, I mean Chucky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Chucky, you got any, any questions for John? No, man. I think we, we hit it pretty good. I mean, without getting like super into the details, I feel like anybody from our area that's typically going to listen to this, and even if you're not from our area, there's a lot to be gained from the information that we're sharing, you know, just to... And for me personally, it, it got rid of a lot of that fear that I, I once said, you know, I don't know if I'll ever elk hunt because there's a lot of that doubt and just a lot of commitment to it that I didn't know if I wanted to do or not. Yeah. Oh, so. for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not just for dudes from Pennsylvania. I mean, if you're from yeah. Ohio, Kentucky, anywhere, and you're thinking South. about going out, you know, wherever. I mean, this is all, you know, the same, same, you know, yeah. it's the same for everybody to get out there. But I mean, we definitely wanted to demystify things and, you know, make it a little more, uh, 
overwhelming. Overwhelming was the word that I, I seem to use whenever we're talking <laughs> about this. Cause it, 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 it can be. If you're going into it like how you did, I give you a lot of credit to go in completely on your own, completely cold, no knowledge and, you know, just send it. I mean, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It is a lot to figure out. Yeah. Well, we teased it, but I, I do want to hear at least one of your elk stories from this year. If you want to pick one of them and just give a real quick, real quick, uh, recap of the hunt and kind of how break down the, the moment. He's not letting you leave empty handed. I'm not. I, I, I can give you a story. All right. I, that won't be a problem. I, the one thing I, I will say too is, you know, if you, as far as demystifying it, everything was hard when you first started it, right? Yeah. And you, you figure it out. It's just more about trying it and you'll learn. And it's not that difficult, but it is reward. It's a little more rewarding doing it on your own than calling a guide and having them do everything for you. Feel better sense of accomplishment, but at the end of the day, too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a lot less expensive, but it's also, you know, I, it's a new experience and it's a cool experience. It's a different way to, you know, hunting in PA. You, you can't really get kicking into whitetail season until October. This is a great way to spend the month of September, yeah. you know, archery elk hunting and, and expand your, your hunting season. So for sure. The, Absolutely. I, you know, this year hunting story or previous year hunting story? Yeah, what, right? Whatever's matter. sticking out in your mind right now. I want to, I just go for it. I want to hear it. Uh, I guess I had a pretty cool story this year and had, had a couple. I, actually, I'll tell a 2017 one. Maybe it's more just, it was an interesting experience, but, uh, it was my wife and I, and we were archery elk hunting Colorado over the counter. You know, I, I'm a first week of the season guy. I like, when they're a little bit patternable and I more than anything, I can't wait any longer. By the time it was <laughs> they were opening their season the last Saturday of August, all right, we were there. I mean, I was there like August twentieth, ready to go. We you know, we do do the deal, hunt for however many days, running across guys and guys and guys, and finally got on a bull and I put an arrow in a bull and it was a bad shot. It was one of those things it was 40 yards steep uphill. My bow was canted more than I thought. And it just arrow a shot I've made a hundred times, a thousand times at home goes back, right? Falls back more liver side than shoulder side. And, you know, immediately terrible feeling. But what we did, you know, we went back, went back to the truck, which is a two mile walk back to the truck. Sat down, ate lunch, change, like I changed into shorts. It was almost 90 degrees. Like it was hot as shit. It was the middle end of August. So we go back up there and we start roping this thing off, taping it, you know, following the blood trail, finding little blood, big blood, you know, and then it's just continually getting smaller and smaller until we're hands and knees and we hit an avalanche shoot. So out west, there will be these areas where the snow all packs up. And rushes down the mountain whenever the spring you know, thaw occurs and generally wipes all the trees off of it. South facing slopes, there's a lot of vegetation, like grasses on there. But no, and it's just dirty. I could see that the elk made it to there and then nothing beyond there. And at this point, we tracked the damn thing for like three hours and I shot it at eight. We gave it three hours to sit. So we're back up on the mountain at 11. Now it's probably two o'clock, three o'clock, and I'm thinking, all right, are we, are we ever going to find this? We weren't about to give up on it, but you know, hands and knees for three hours in this little area, I, I didn't know what else to do. 
So we totally lost blood. I take one step on the other side of the avalanche chute, and I hear, like, something rolling down the mountain. Big, like somebody pushed a cow right off the top, and it's just breaking branches. And this is about as steep as you can imagine. You know, it's not something you can, like, you know, you're you're not standing on even footing. Let's call it that. Well, it turns out it's the bull. It had lost so much blood that it tried to stand up and basically lost total energy and lost all the blood pressure that it had, rolled all the way down, halfway down the damn hill. And I, we, if I hadn't stepped into there, I never would have found it because we had totally lost blood. It was one of those just dumb luck things. I was able to get over to it and it was his first archery elk I'd ever shot. And it was one of those go from feeling like as low as you can be to feeling way better about it. I was so paranoid about like spoiling meat. I didn't, I took one pic. There's one picture of me with it that my wife's mask while I've got my gut and gloves on and I've already got it half open. And I wish it was, it was a really nice elk. I wish I'd taken like more pictures with it, but I was so concerned because it was so hot and it was getting dark and I didn't want to spoil the meat, but it was a kind of a cool, it wasn't cool. It was definitely not the way you would want to harvest something, but it was worth, uh, sticking through it and trying to find something and, and whatnot. But that's, you know, well, one of the, one of the elk stories that has some flavor to it as opposed to the, you know, grind it out for seven days, shoot it and it dies right there. Yeah. Those are, those are really fun, but you know, not the best stories. Oh, for sure. No, that's awesome. That's, it's even cooler that your wife to keep repeating that comes and does that stuff with you. That's awesome. And that's cool, now too. That You're all about kids, the meat, too. Happen, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. Once he gets old enough, man, we, hey, we're taking the kid. They they love that when you take the kid. Well, as long as he's quiet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. Good for luck sure. with that. Yeah. Well, well I'm going to try it as soon as possible. But, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm sure it won't. I'm sure my success rate will go down, but <laughs> I guess that's part of the deal. <laughs> hey, puppies are trainable. You just got to get them early enough, for right? For sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Well, hey, we really appreciate you coming on, John. I, I had a really good time uh, recording this. I think uh, Boer and Jeff here, I think they would agree that w- this was a blast. And we really appreciate you taking time out on your weekend, man, and uh, spending it here with us. Oh, we're definitely going to be checking back in with you here for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. You're not getting off the limb that easily. You know, we'll, we'll be back with you and uh, we'll get another episode. Sounds good, guys. I appreciate it. If there's any way, uh, you know, to help some of the listeners anymore, you know, happy to do so. You know, I think it's, uh, anything about getting people into hunting out west and hunting period is positive. So absolutely. Where can everybody find you on the socials? Well, I think my Instagram's just John Wappler. I don't have Facebook or anything actually beyond that. John, just J O H N W A P P L E R. Hell yeah. Well, we'll be tagging the crap out of you and all this. Yep. Everybody else, uh, like, subscribe, give it a thumbs up. Uh, don't leave too much negative comments unless it's about me. I love that stuff. But uh, otherwise, stay the course, and we'll uh, see you next time. <laughs>